Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Hey, it's Daryl, and welcome back to the podcast. In this season, I'm working through some of the themes from my new book, Eight Habits for Growth. And I want to talk to people who've actually thought a lot deeper about each of these themes and how it relates to us today. And today I want to talk about the seventh habit, simplify and prioritize. This is really a habit about getting rid of the clutter and focusing on what matters most. And to do that, I want to maybe look at that from a different angle. I want to talk to Nathan Oates, who's lead pastor of Emmaus Church Community in Lincoln, California, because he's the author of a new book called Stability, How an Ancient Monastic Practice Can Restore Our Relationships, Churches, and Communities. This is almost an extreme version of simplifying and prioritizing, really getting to a different way of life. And I think as he's going to talk about, it's not just a way of life that's focused on behavior, but that gets to some of the hard issues of why we're always in a rush, always on the move, always feeling restless. Nathan is a a practitioner of community restoration, and he believes that uh, there is a way to push past the consumerism and its destructive influence on our hearts that is part of our society today, and to combat some of the effects on our families, our churches, and our cities. And he's going to talk about something called the ancient Benedictine vow of stability. He's going to argue that a movement that heals uh, it, it is really rooted in an immovable commitment to a people, a place, and a purpose. Embracing stability, he says, is the path to restoration. And so I'm excited to talk to Nathan about his book and some of his background, how he got interested in this, and his experience living with monks. So Nathan, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you on with us today. Thanks, Daryl. So, so glad to be here. Nathan, I'm really curious how you got interested in the rule of St. Benedict. I think it's become a little bit trendy among some people. I've certainly Mm -hmm. seen books on it, but it's still not really that mainstream. How did you get interested in it? Yeah, that's a great question. I studied spiritual formation in college and grad school, so I've been wired towards this in this direction for a long time and really fascinated essentially with the process of change, how people change. I got to witness my family convert non-Christian to Christian at a real formative age in my adolescence. And and that really was a fascinating and powerful experience for me. And since then, I think I've been really interested in the influences that catalyze change, the factors that sustain change so that it's not just a flash in the pan, but actually there's a, there's a shift in value and in desire and people actually become something else. We, we actually can become saints. So. Um, that was in my mind and in my education for a while. And then about 
15 years ago, I was at a retreat house and I was waiting for a ride and there was an old library there, mostly Eastern Orthodox books. And I pulled out this little teeny red book from the shelf and it said the rule of St. Benedict. And I didn't know anything about him. I don't know how he had escaped my um, awareness for so long, but I turned to the first page of the first chapter and the first line is this, clearly there are four kinds of monks. And I just thought that was the most interesting opening line. I didn't know there were four kinds of monks, you know what I mean? So I start reading his, his definition of these four kinds of monks. And ultimately, Daryl, at the end of that, maybe 15 minutes, I felt like this man had diagnosed the problem with the North American church so succinctly that I was literally turning the book around, trying to find out who is this man and when did he write this book? And I was shocked to find out he's an Italian from the sixth century. And he's talking about the collapse of Rome and the church during the collapse of Rome. But I felt like he just absolutely nailed specifically the consumerism that in my view and in his view was just wrecking the Christian community. And so I thought, Daryl, if he understands the problem, maybe he's got a good solution. And that solution ultimately is the vow of stability. And so since that day, I have read more on St. Benedict and Benedictine spirituality than any other topic. I've continued to be totally fascinated by it. So I'm surprised to hear you talk about consumerism in Benedict's day, because I often think of it as being a modern thing, you know, something that maybe was invented with the industrial revolution and has, has accelerated recently. So what did it look like back then? How did it how did it differ? How was it the same as what we face today? It's a great question. He he goes to college at nineteen in Rome, and he drops out almost immediately because of the uh, just the brokenness, the moral decay that he encounters in Rome. And it's not just the culture; it's also the church. There's corruption in the church that really causes him to experience some deep disillusionment. I think I think that that has to do with that's related to consumerism. The bishops of the church had been given political power by this time. And so there's a, there's a possibility that there was real advantage financially and in terms of power to be in religious places of, places of religious authority. I'd love to pursue that question more um, in terms of the roots of consumerism in and of itself. But what he explicitly says uh, that relates to this is the fourth kind of monk that he describes, which he detests and says is worse in any way than the the other bad kind of monk that he identifies. He calls this this kind of monk the gyroveg, which is a word he makes up to mean like he's they just circle around. They just they swirl around in circles and they never stop. And he's essentially describing this trend among so-called monks, church shopping is what they would do, except they were they were going from monastery to monastery. And in the Benedictine tradition, guests are welcomed as Christ. And so if you show up at, at a monastery as a guest, you're given a great place to stay. You're given a beautiful welcome, graceful response, good food, place of honor. You sit by the abbot. And, and then the trend apparently was that after three or four days of this kind of hospitality, when they finally said, hey, would you guys help with the dishes? These gyrobegs would say, oh, actually, we're, we're moving on. So he just feels like these guys are, they, they are ashamed to the whole idea of monasticism. And he's got some really strong words 
um, for them. So that's the form of consumerism that was most immediately in the context of Benedict in the sixth century. And so to counter that, Daryl, he says, if you're even going to come to my monastery, a requirement of entrance is a vow of stability. Like you're not going anywhere. You're going to, you're going to commit to spend the rest of your life literally within the confines of this community with these people serving this rule and serving me or whoever I place in charge as your abbot. So talk about what that stability looks like and especially translating that out of his day in a monastery Mm -hmm. to living in North America in the 21st century. What do you, what do you actually mean when you're talking about stability? Okay. First, that question was my essential question with this book project. Is there a way for us to take what, what monks have done for generations, for decades, centuries, and translate it into a different Christian tradition, a Protestant context, a non-cloistered context. We're a dispersed community. I don't live in community with the people in my church. Uh, we all have our own homes in different parts of the town. Um, is there a way we can take something of the stability that is supporting and enabling such a profound holiness and effectiveness in, affecting, in impacting the culture there and translate it to our context here? And that question, which I asked in several ways, and I explained this in the book, it was when I asked the monks during this three-week stay in, in a monastery in Italy, their response was pretty negative. Like, we don't think you can. We don't think you can translate this. You, don't, you can't just import this into a different context because the context is so fundamental to to what we're experiencing. So I've had to do a lot of work, and I can say more about that if you're interested. But I've had to do a lot of translation in order to glean something of the essence of Benedictine stability and, and then try to put it into practice here. It, it is the fundamental challenge, I think, that I'm, that I'm facing. So I put it like this, as you said in the intro, we, you and I in our contexts, we can still make a vow to, I'm going to be committed to this place, to these people, and to this shared purpose. I think even if we move in that direction, we've gone miles beyond the typical consumer-driven, you know, treat the church as a commodity, not as a community approach that, frankly, is just, in my view, it's characterizing especially the larger North American evangelical churches. So, Nathan, I think in the book you talk about really the, the state of our North American society. We're always in a rush. It seems mm-hmm. like we are in this frantic search for more satisfaction and meaning. And usually that means, you know, we need either a new experience or uh, a new place or something to give us the excitement. And we're always mm-hmm. hoping that will lead to contentment. And it's yeah. it's just not working, right? It, it leads to this sense of restlessness. And no matter how much we get, it's it's simply not enough. So how is stability pointing us in the right direction to finding what we're actually looking for? Yeah, it's inviting us to a a contentedness here. And that is a fundamental shift in the way we think. We think we're trained. We are we are wired not by God, but by the culture to expect the next phone to be better than this phone and the next house to be uh, bigger and better than, and the next job. 
And, and so I think simply the, uh, the idea that you could be content, there could be this residential contentedness in remaining is a big leap, is a big step and shift in, in values and expectation. So it challenges our very worldview, I think, at a really fundamental level. But I think that, as you mentioned, Daryl, there's enough dissatisfaction with the status quo, which is constant movement, that there actually might be an audience or a willingness is probably a better way to say it, to, to hear a different approach to life. You know, I don't get it anymore. I think people are just finally like, oh, I think he's just going to stay at that church for the rest of his life. But for the first six, seven, eight years that we were here at our church that we planted and things were going well, some of the optics were good. I was getting invitations to go to other places and my like, no, I'm not, I'm hardly even getting started here kind of perspective was met with a, oh, okay. So you're not really ambitious enough to succeed in ministry. You're not, you don't really want to take the the platform at the next level. Almost like I was a failure in, in not desiring to kind of climb the ladder, even within the context of pastoral ministry, which is really it's really too bad, don't you think? I mean, it, I can imagine that in certain professional contexts, but it even exists in the church. So, so first of all, I think there's this contentedness that it invites us into. And then the second thing that comes to mind when you ask that question, Daryl, is that we don't develop when we're constantly moving. Like a tree can't produce fruit if you, if you transplant it three or four times. It, it somehow loses the ability to produce fruit. And I think there's a parallel there that's really important to, to pay attention to. The, the place, remaining in a place, which is the most basic, primal, fundamental expression of stability, don't go anywhere. Even that is so challenging because it's so instructive. The place teaches me what is real. You see what I mean? Like, I fashion myself a leader. You should ask my staff if I really am a leader, because they're the ones that will, that will tell you that most accurately. You know, my home is what's going to reveal the truth most clearly about who I am and what I value. The place is such a powerful instructor. And, and then we can just, there's just circles that go out from there. There's the place, there's the people, there's the purpose, and ultimately there's the heart of God. But I don't think that most that we come into contact with have allowed stability to do its work long enough to really see the value of it, which is too bad because we love the fruit of stability, or at least we admire the fruit of stability. We admire the 40-year marriage. We admire the, the long-tenured um, and successful business career. Um, you know, the man who or the woman who takes the business through four or five iterations and remains in the lead and just seems to have this staying power, but we, we seem to repudiate the practice itself of stability. Why is that? What is what is there that makes us want to be on the run all the time? It, even mm. though we like the fruit, it's like we we just don't stick around long enough to get that fruit. What's yeah. behind that? Oh man, I want to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's hard to stay. Fundamentally, it's just really hard. It's hard to stay in a marriage for your whole life. It's hard to stick with a friend that is taxing. Um, it's hard to pastor the same community. It's just difficult. And then maybe at a more of an anthropological level, we are restless. We are just, we're restless beings. 
we have a fundamental lack of trust in our creator and it's caused us since the first record of humanity to run away from conflict instead of face it. So I think that, I think that combination of our desire to not take responsibility and to run and the simple challenge of, um, of the daily work of remaining is, is what probably causes most of us to just bail as soon as things get a little bit sideways. What do you think in terms of your writing and research? What, what do you think the answer to the question is? We live, I was telling you before we started recording that I live in a hyper transient community where people move every, 70% move every two years. And I think you nailed it. I, I think it's a sense of this is a temporary stop on the way to something better. And, mm. uh, you know, in, mm. in Toronto where I am, it seems like the model is you stay in a career for two years, but if you're there, you're three, you're starting to get stale and you're not going to be able to move up. I think yes. I have this image of life that, Life is continually trading up, almost like yeah. a game of bigger and better. And mm -hmm. you take that to the extreme of even upgrading relationships, right? This person's yes. not Mr. Yes. Right, but they're Mr. Right now. And you know, <laughs> then I'll, I, I, you know, maybe somebody better is going to come along. And, you know, Nathan, I mean, you're the expert on this more than I am, but I think our we're shaped, you know, there's in the same way that you go on Amazon and shop for the mm -hmm. ideal product it's like that with everything now right you go on a job yeah. <laughs> search site and there's an infinite number of jobs to aspire or you go on a dating site and infinite number of potential partners so i think we've just bought into this right. vision of we can continually trade up yeah that's such a great comment dating we date like we shop isn't that crazy i mean i haven't dated for 25 years but we date you literally are flipping through images of products that's incredible it it can't help but wire us it can't help but shape us yeah one of the best questions i was asked daryl early in the project by one of my best friends in fact i've known this guy since we went to high school together we played football together and he said stability you want to write on stability he said that sounds like stagnation <laughs> and it was really helpful because it was good to hear a perspective that wasn't shaped at all by by the writings of Benedict, as I had been already for too long to kind of get outside of it. And so it helped me to clarify things in the book. I talk about the posture of stability, not being doing nothing, even though it can look like you're doing nothing. Uh, we live by the American River. We go there a lot on our days off. It's not a huge river, but it's big enough to be dangerous. And occasionally we'll try to cross the river. And when our kids were younger, I would go out in the middle of the river, they would kind of come to me and I would kind of help them get across. It looks like I'm doing nothing, but under the water, like say I'm about like chest deep in the water, I am bracing. I am leaning against the current. My toes are dug into the, to the river rock. It's very active. It looks like I'm doing nothing, but in fact, doing nothing would be floating down the river like a dead piece of wood. That's, that would be, and people would go, oh look, he's moving, but no, he's not. He's just going with the current. The true picture of stability is this posture of remaining that is very active, requiring a lot of intentionality and focus, and it's enabling, it's enabling actually helpful movement to happen, in this case, the crossing of the river of my kids. So I think the posture of stability is something that's really hard for us to get our heads wrapped around. It's not complicated, but we just don't ever see it like that. And then the purpose of stability needs to be held up as well, because 
stability for the sake of stability itself is sort of silly. Stability is instrumental. Stability's value is is held in what it enables. You know, the 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 Jesus's of the soils, the value of the of the soil that enables the the seeds to take root is that it's it's undisturbed. It is the stability enables not just a safe place to be, but it enables fruit, right? So that's the it's instrumental. If we if we elevate people have talked to me a lot in the last couple of weeks since the books come out. Like stability is the ideal. It's the it's the ultimate. It's not really the ultimate. It's simply a a necessary ingredient to the ultimate, which is work that lasts, fruit that matters, those kinds of things, a marriage that is fulfilling, those kinds of things. The the ironic thing and the sad thing is it's just been so ignored in North American culture, maybe Western culture at large, that uh, it sounds like a brand new idea. It's really not. It's just a rarely demonstrated value, I think. Are you a big fan of Zach Aswine? Have you read some of his books? I don't. No, I, I know the name, but I've never read his books. In his book, The Imperfect Pastor, he talks about the the desire to transcend our limits and to be everywhere at once and to know everything that's going on and mm. to be able to fix everything and to do things quickly and famously. And he talks about pastoral ministry really being something about doing small things, mostly unseen and unknown by everybody else over a long period of time. And it's really a model of stability. I think what he's describing there is a model of pastoring that is about doing that slow, patient, unseen work of being in a community and loving a certain people for a long period of time. And that's a very un-American, un-Canadian way of of pastoring. Mm -hmm. So how has that shaped your pastoral ministry? You've planted a church. I'm sure that you've wrestled through how this shapes how you Mm -hmm. pastor, what it what the, the church becomes as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like we're beginning to see the fruit of having been here for a long time. There's not a, it was such an advantage to plant. I don't know if you've, yeah, you did. You planted your church. So it's such an advantage rather than coming in on the heels of somebody else and dealing with the challenges that just aren't your issues anymore, but you've now adopted them. You've now, you, they're now yours you bought the farm kind of thing. But so I think we were able to start with a vision that cast this as a value from the beginning. Um, and now we've been able to le- live into that vision so consistently that the three values of our church are still the values of our church that we started with. They're still the values. I still believe in them with my whole heart. Our whole community is wrapped around these values. And, and now in regard to the fruit. I mean, people that I got to lead to Christ. Now I got to marry, do their weddings. Now I'm baptizing kids. You know, it's just, it's just so good. It's just so beautiful. I think that the change has been remarkable in terms of the perspective of our church on the part of the city. We used to offer, we came here, we're like, Hey, we want to help. We're here to serve the city. We're here to, you know, we'll do whatever you want nothing. They didn't need us, want us, no interest in us at all. Um, That has shifted in just the last couple of years. And I believe it's because now we have something to offer. What do we have to offer? Stability. Like we have been here. We've been here longer than most of the city councilmen have lived in the town. Like now we're a community that has roots here 
knowledge, the capacity to meet practical needs. We stepped in during the pandemic when the school shut down and were able to do really meaningful work here. That's the kind of thing that is valued. What people don't see is that took 17 years to arrive. There was no shortcut to that. There's no shortcut to that. There's no shortcut to 25 years of marriage. You got to go through 365 days of marriage 25 times, right? To get to that. And uh, I, I just am totally, you know, thrilled by that revelation that now I'm beginning to experience finally at I just turned 49 last week. Now I feel like it's now starting to get good. <laughs> I wish I could tell the 23 year old church planter, hold on for 20 years and <laughs> it'll get good. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's so true, though. Do you, do you find the temptation? I'm sure you do. Do you find the temptation because the normal church marketing model is come to our church because we offer something? It's really the marketing, the consumeristic pitch, right? You're going to get something here that you don't get elsewhere. So how do you shift that and, and really begin to cast a, a different set of values and a different way of living? Oh, man, that's a good question. I had it easy, Daryl, because... We were called to, to this place to plant. I was given an internship at the big model, big church and told, do this with our network. And the bottom line is they might even be right. I might be wrong. And I've said this to several people. The big church might be right and I might be wrong. The bottom line is I can't get passionate about that. So I can't give my life to that model. I just can't do it. If you want to me to do the big flashy something for everyone kind of church, I, I'll just die. My soul will just shrivel. So in that sense, I say that I, I had it easy because God wired me in such a way that I recognized within the first couple of weeks of this request to plant a church like that. I, I, I just can't do it. It's not about right or wrong. It's about my vision. I just can't get passionate about that. I felt like I was given the freedom to pursue what I am passionate about, and that is this contemplative spirituality that ultimately affects holistic transformation in a person and in a community. So I credit the people who are in leadership over me, giving me freedom to do this, which was very weird. I'm in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a holiness denomination that started in LA and then in Texas. And uh, we're not very typical Nazarene in the way we look and 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 uh, the liturgy that we use. We, we look more Anglican and more contemplative, and we're always being asked, "Are you Catholic?" But that's it's because I, I am so grateful for the freedom that I was given to to just pursue what I was ultimately passionate about, which I think ultimately speaks to this idea of stability. It's really hard to remain if you're not convinced if you're not passionate if you don't love it so i would want to be careful to say to somebody who's like oh man i got into this and it's not a good fit i would not be asking them to remain i would be asking them i would be trying to give them permission to let's let's try something different right so it's not a one size fits all in every situation don't ever leave anything however if the if the reason that you want to leave is because now it's gotten hard or now there's conflict or those kinds of consumeristic kind of reasons. I would That's the person to whom I would say, oh, it's just going to get good on the other side of this. You got to go through this challenge and it's, it's, you're going to start to see the fruit on the other side. 
So, Nathan, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you a, a stupid question, which is, you know, like, give me the, the quick, how, how can I become a stable person uh, right away? Because I need it. Obviously, it's going to be a long pursuit. It's not going to be an instant thing with three steps. And it's probably also right. a community endeavor, not just an individual endeavor. What are some mm-hmm. practical steps, though, that we can take to begin to at least to move in that direction in our lives? Okay, good. One of the steps that has been meaningful to me is I'm trying to sell it. I put it like in a rhyme in order to make it memorable in the book. Um, and the way I put it in the book is to celebrate the root that leads to the fruit. We're surrounded by the happy endings and testimonies that are, and then happily ever after. And we're now everybody's wonderful and everything's fixed. I don't often hear stories about the sacrifice with no resolution. I don't often hear stories about the, the, the challenges just disconnected from the victories. And so much of life is that, so much of life. And I'm trying to lead myself and our community into a corporate experience that celebrates the root, not just the fruit. Let's, so we begin to see there is value in being on this street for a decade. But let's not even talk about the transformation of the shop owner who we walk past every day yet. That that hasn't happened yet. But let's celebrate. We've been here for 10 years, right? Or whatever it is. And with that, the sacrifices, the things that we've given up, the, the promotions that we've said no to, the nicer house that was actually 30 minutes away. So it's ultimately, it's going to kind of, it's going to kind of drag us out of this community. So we said no to that. I want to celebrate those things. As, as worthy of celebrate, we've endured, we've, we've, we've survived, like that's the beginning. So that's one of the things that I've been trying to lead our community into. And, and before I did that, I had to lead myself into it. And I had to celebrate that myself, like celebrating three years of real difficulty in a specific situation where it seemed like everything else around me fell apart because there was an illness that was so consuming that it's all I could do. So, so everything just fell apart. Well, that's either just a terrible story, a waste of time, something you want to erase from your history, or it's, it's this place where the seed died and then something else started and happening that maybe I couldn't even recognize. I want to celebrate that why? Because there's, I mean, even yesterday, Daryl, you, you probably go through this too. I'm preaching on joy out of Philippians and I'm looking out in a congregation and I was like, there's a cancer diagnosis and there's someone who's recently blind and there's someone who's going through a divorce. And so I'm trying, I need to say what you're going through right now, it matters, even though it's horrible and hard. I have to, I, I want to be able to believe that that's true. And I do believe that that's true. But I don't want to just be talking about health and wealth and prosperity all the time. So they're like, what's the matter with me? I want to say, no, that pain, that darkness, that dark night of the soul, that um, valley of the shadow of death, that's where God is. And it's going to, that part, that's part of the story that matters. That was a really long answer to your question. Sorry. Nathan, in talking to you, there's something inviting about what you're talking about. And what I'm noticing is even in the way that you describe it, this is obviously a message that you're living into. And it's not just a message that you discovered last year, but it's one that you've been building into your life. And I I just, yeah, I just appreciate 
how attractive it is, not just the ideas, but even seeing you uh, practice that in your life and ministry. I really appreciate that. I want to ask you a couple personal questions as we close here. This has gone way too fast, but what are you learning lately? It doesn't have to be related to stability. It can be related to anything, but what have you been learning lately in your life? Reading or whatever. That's a great question. Yeah. Hmm. First thing that comes to mind, I'll segue with your last question. Another really practical way to grow in stability is to have someone coach you in it. You know, to, to have someone who values it more than you do help you to make the choices for stability. My growth in the last 21 years has been significantly shaped by my spiritual director, who is a, a priest in a Episcopal Anglican tradition. So a little different than me, brought different questions to my situations, offered different resources than I would typically go to. And as you can imagine, if you meet with somebody consistently for 21 years and you confess your sins and you share your burdens and your hopes, they become massively significant to you. And he passed away last week. And I'm lear- so yes, what are you learning? I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing the void that now exists in my in my life and in my ministry, this man's words are all over my ministry. Um, my sermons were shaped by him and my personal growth was deeply shaped by him. So I haven't learned the lesson necessarily, but I'm seeing something, Daryl, that I haven't seen clearly in 20 years, which is um, the significant role that a few others can play in your life when you stay with him for so long. Um, he's, I feel like he's part of me. I'm part of him. And in the absence of his physical presence now, I'm recognizing just how significant that relationship was, which is make, making me lean into my wife more intentionally, making me spend better time with my kids. I'm just seeing, boy, you've got, you know, I, you and I probably live in a world with hundreds of people that we know, probably just a few that really know us well. And there's so much value there. So, so that value should shape my decisions. I should be spending, I should be leaning in and making, prioritizing those few relationships. Sadly, sometimes it's the absence that reveals the, the beauty of something that you had become accustomed to for a couple of decades. But yeah. That's the raw there, Dr. Yeah. Dash. That's, that's very <laughs> Yeah, profound. It, you know, you've been honest about the, so they're looking at people yesterday and seeing how tough life can be, right? Uh, people struggling with illnesses. You've talked about the death of a, a spiritual director and mentor. These are really hard times uh, for a lot of people. What's encouraging you in in a fairly, you know, it's been a difficult season for a lot of us with the pandemic and polarization and everything else going on. What's encouraging you in the middle of that? Mm -hmm. One of the things that's encouraging me is despite the polarization and we've experienced some, we've experienced some relational conflict and political conflict. And there's things that people wanted me to say that I wasn't ready to say or on about seven different issues, you know, there's, as you know, but we have more people in our church community in home groups. We launched a new home group season in the fall. We have hundreds of people in home groups, more than we've ever had. 
And that's so encouraging that people are longing for relational connection. It was the, the isolation that I think was the most destructive. And I don't know if you have little kids still, but the situation at grammar schools is horrendous right now. And at high schools, it's horrendous. And I think it's because of all the isolation. Even with adults, the isolation was super destructive. And so to see people with the capacity to recognize I need to be with others, so encouraging so encouraging. The The rule of St. Benedict is, is for, it's written for personal spiritual formation, but it's addressed to an individual. Listen, my son, that's how it begins. But the assumed context is community. And we can't assume that context anymore in North America because people are so isolated. So to see people recognize that the, the context for my own health is community, it's so encouraging. Yeah, that is very good. Nathan, where can people find your book and where can they learn more about you? Oh, thanks for asking. I have a website, NathanOates.com. That's O-A-T-E-S, NathanOates.com. So the book's available there. It's also available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and those kinds of places. But then I pastor a church here in Northern California called Emmaus Community, and uh, that's EmmausCommunity.org. I really appreciate uh, talking to you today and even talking to you, as I said, there's just a, an invitation almost in in what you're talking about and how you say it to that kind of life. And so I hope that the listeners can pick that up as well. And I'm really grateful for your writing on this and for your ministry. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Thank you brother. It's been really a joy to talk to you. Thanks for the time. <laughs>